Hello, guys. I'm Andy, your Agile coach. This is my podcast, Agile Rocket. This month, I attended an Agile community talking about how to enable a team's awareness to improve themselves. I think highly associated with today's topic because some people, no matter engineering managers, product managers, or project managers, might have experiences of pushing the team's progress with much effort. For example, you have prepared sufficient documents telling them what to do, but the deliverables are poor, such that your credit goes down. Even worse, the team becomes too passive to solve problems independently. You have to control their progress on your own, which consumes lots of your time to manage valuable items. If the similar thoughts had ever passed through your brain, this episode is a must for you. I'm empathetic for your situations because many people are taught to follow instructions, such that they behave like childish adults. Who have lost the ability to self-manage? This channel aims to talk about agile practices from life cases in a comprehensible manner, boost the team collaboration efficiency with agile methodologies, and help people adopt the agile mindset in their daily life. Today, I'm going to share a story in service first to show you what a self-organized team would do to adapt themselves to bad conditions without instructions. Also, the story was from the book. The Agile Project Management with Scrum. Let's delve into today's topic. At the end of the episode, I will give you my insights and reflections on the story. If you want to know more real cases of Agile practices, subscribe to my podcast, thumbs up, and grow with me. So,、uh, let's brief the background of today's role. Service first. Service first was a medium-sized vendor of customer service software with an amount of domestic and international customers, and their products were well known in the industry. With a solid release once a year, you don't get anything wrong. Once a year, we nowadays cannot imagine what would happen if we release products once a year, but it seems very common almost 20 years ago. At the time, they were planning the next release for a new product line. So a team composed of 17 people with required skills was built for the first Scrum project. You might have got some best mail from my former sentence, right? Let's go ahead. Ken Weber kicked off a two-day coaching session, telling them what to do when they were going to adopt the Scrum framework. When he attended their first sprint training, he implicitly sensed something wrong. There were 17 people in the meeting room. That was overcrowded for a Scrum team. Even worse. He observed that there were two groups of people: aggressive ones and passive ones. The former fully engaged in discussion with the product owner, while the latter just withdrew from the process. Ken interrupted their discussion several times to ensure the quarter members knew what to do for the sprint. He ended up knowing their complaint about standing up in daily scrums. He was a little frustrated by the result. After all, they found a way to proceed with the project. Only seven aggressive people lean forward, discuss, and collaborate to formulate the action plans. The other ten members were sitting out of the process. When I read the story till this part, I felt a weird atmosphere would spread among the team and cause conflicts between aggressive ones and passive ones. Ken was just too late to reconstitute the team, so he decided to wait for a while and see what would happen. Much to his surprise, several days later, he joined their daily scrum and found their event were a lively, active session. Everyone was reporting about work accomplished and work planned. To clarify what happened, Ken asked some members to meet with him after the daily scrum. He wanted to know 
what had happened to them. At the time, the team had discovered that the management had made the mistake of creating such a large team that might damage their productivity, but they didn't expect to confront their management, so they decided to break themselves into four sub-teams. Each of them contained about three to five people. The engineering and testing leads helped them formulate the teams and divided the work to minimize copying and maximizing cohesion. They were responsible for resolving dependency issues among teams as work progressed. Ken was impressive to their reactions to team size and saw the potential of a self-organized team to resolve problems. Try imagine. In general, a company would acquire a third-party group to engage into the process of dividing members into several sub-teams because they have to communicate with the management and negotiate with all parties involved. But when a team deal with a problem collectively, it was able to decompose it into manageable chunks. Well, when I studied the case, it was abnormal to me because that could hardly happen in our country. If you try to reorganize the team, you have to seek support from the management as well as your manager and prepare some materials to tell them why your suggestions would work. This is such a long process that almost nobody would do that. The story also intrigued my interest in thinking about some meaningful questions of HR practices. The first one is, how to activate the team's awareness to self-organized mindset? If you are an active person, always seek better approaches to resolving issues. Maybe you cannot imagine there are groups of people who cannot manage their work with consciousness, even if they are skillful people. Because we are all trained to receive instructions to solve problems in the schooling system. It gives you a lot of assignments to master your skills. That's great. However, when there are not assignments, it's probably that you will put your skills aside and have no ideas what to do. You lose the ability to discover problems and solve them by yourself. So does in the office. This is the systematic problem that most employees are attempting to receive instructions instead of proposing solutions themselves. To tackle the problem, the management should revise the system mechanism to encourage changes to happen. For example, people who propose a small solution could be rewarded with a free ticket to a movie. Of course, I don't recommend you take huge changes in no time because they might lead to resistance of a team, but small changes are acceptable. The second one is, what if the same condition happens in Asia countries? You know, I'm from Taiwan. Culturally, I won't try to persuade the management to reorganize the team unless I could get support from the managers or I have sufficient materials to prove that the action should be taken. Otherwise, I will try to implicitly divide the team into subgroups by assigning work items with low coupling and high coercion. But I will propose the solution to the manager to seek basic support. If that works well, then I could further suggest the manager to do the vision. In Asia, if you are not a manager, try to provide your suggestions to them instead of asking the management to abide by your solutions. We need the courage to build an agile team, but there is a spectrum of courage that determines how much we could do to influence the result. And the last question is, why could they self-organize? In the story, it was fortunate some people were waiting to react to the insufficiency caused by the management. I bet there must be some courageous people out there and the culture supports their movements to do this. This was a special case, but it implicitly pointed out an important factor. 
culture. How to cultivate a culture that motivates people to propose solutions themselves without instructions? In his book, it didn't reveal the details of service first. In my opinion, it is the psychologically safe place that matters to enable the dynamics to happen. I hope the story gave you some inspiration to make something to change your circumstances. If you like this episode, thumbs up, subscribe me, and comment below if you have any questions. I'm Andy, your Agile Coach.